Welcome to History of the World Part 2, a podcast dedicated to teaching world history. Welcome back to History of the World Part 2. And this week's going to be a little bit different because we're wrapping up our first unit. And so to start this part off of the podcast this week, I want to talk about what we're going to be doing this week. And then on the back side of the podcast, the history section, we're going to talk about a topic that we haven't gotten to mention much in this unit, the Renaissance, that was also happening in other parts of the world, giving us a a clearer picture of world history during this time. And so to start out today, what I'd like to talk to you about is what we have going on in class. And this week's going to be a little bit of a different week because we are doing our first test. Our first check-in to see how well you're doing in the class. And for this test, it's going to look very similar to what we've been doing this entire unit so far, this entire semester, where we have a set of documents, we read those documents, and then we create an argument based upon those documents. And the plan this week is I'm not looking for perfection. This is our test, but I'm not looking for perfection. Since this is really our first test, I want you to do your best, and it's going to count for points still. But think of this more as a diagnostic. This is me stopping, seeing where you are, so that we can compare this test down the road to the rest of the tests we do. And hopefully by the end of the year, we've seen how much you've grown in your ability to think like a historian and and write and create arguments like a historian would. So without further ado, let me give you some of the specifics of what this test is going to look like this week. The first thing is this. The question that you're going to be writing about this week, and to wrap up the whole first unit, is this. Was the Renaissance a positive or a negative change in human history? This time period, the 1500s or so, When all of a sudden humanity seems to wake up again, it's reborn, literally what the word translates to. Was that a positive change for humanity or not? And to do this, to answer this question, we're going to be using the same organizer, the same argumentative paragraph organizer that has a topic sentence, concrete details, commentary, and concluding sentences, we are going to have some documents to draw information, to draw concrete details. And the way these documents are going to work, there's going to be one from each topic we've covered. The plan is, instead of me throwing new stuff at you and forcing you to think through it all and try to cram it into your brains, they're going to be documents that hopefully should look a little familiar to you. So let's get into what these documents are. 
The first document that you have to kind of work with as you create your argument was the one tying back to the Roman Empire when we talked about Rome, about whether or not Rome was truly democratic or not. Whether or not Rome was as good a place government-wise and humanity-wise as everyone says it was. And this is the document written by that professor, Alan Ward, Think Back a Couple Weeks. The second document we're going to have to look off of is one that comes from the Dark Ages, the, sep- the second topic we talked about, talking about were the Dark Ages really as dark as we thought they were. And this source is one that we got into where we look at um, a document from an abbey, from a church during this time period, talking about the stuff that was happening in the Dark Ages during the 10 years that it records or so. And it talks about there being an earthquake. It talks about Vikings coming in and destroying things, right? That's going to go back a ways, but it's going to give you kind of a little chunk there to think about the Dark Ages before the Renaissance. Then document C, we start getting into the Renaissance stuff. And we talked about two major events during the Renaissance here. The first one was we talked about Galileo and what happened to him when he argued that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, that the sun was that heliocentric theory, that the sun was the center of the universe. And we talked about how the Catholic Church condemned him. And so our third source is that document that came, that came from the Catholic Church in which they condemned Galileo, their official document where they say, this is what we think you did wrong, Galileo. This is what we're going to do about it. And we talked about how he was excommunicated and all kinds of other things. And then finally, the last source that we have for creating this argument for your little test here is one we just finished up with talking about the Protestant Reformation and specifically talking about Martin Luther and why he left the Catholic Church. And this document is the last document from the one with Martin Luther where he talks about how he fell out from the Catholic Church and he talks about how he doesn't like what the Pope was doing and everything. And so what we're going to be doing this week is I'm essentially going to give you these documents, go over them with you a little bit in class, but hopefully listen to the podcast as well. And I'm going to give you the or the argumentative organizer that we've been using over and over and over. And you're going to have the whole week to take these four documents, use them how you will, use as many of them as you'd like to create your argument about whether the Renaissance was a good thing for human history or whether it was a bad thing for human history. And I'm going to see how well you're able to do it with little input from me. So that's the plan this week. And once this is done, we're going to start opening up this class to a little bit more of the world and world history. And this is just a taste of where we're going. But our next unit, two weeks from here, and I'm sure I'll talk about it on the next podcast, is going to be all about the beginnings of the global age of exploration. We're going to start leaving the Western world, Western history, specifically European history. And we've talked about how the first unit is very heavily focused on that. But we're going to start seeing what's been happening in places like Africa while this was going on. What's been happening in places like South America and North America, these undiscovered continents, at least to the Western world. What's been happening in Asia? And we're hopefully going to start seeing a much clearer picture of the world. But But this week we're going to be wrapping this unit up. So we have this test. We'll go over it in class. 
Uh, but hopefully this little discussion has kind of helped you get a better sense of the planning that we have behind this. Now, we're also going to start the process of thinking about the wider world on the second half of the podcast today. Because the second half of the podcast, we're going to talk about what's been happening in the Middle East. While the Catholic Church is doing their thing with Galileo and why the Catholic Church is going through this Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther um, in the Middle East, in places like modern-day Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia, you have a whole nother um, empire growing based upon Islam and the Muslim faith. And they're going to have a big impact on things that are going to be happening down the road. And so today, on the second half of the podcast, we're going to leave Europe for a while. We've talked a lot about them. We're going to leave Europe for a while. We're going to talk about what's been happening in the Middle East. So stay tuned and come right back after the break. Welcome back to the history portion of the podcast, the second half of the podcast, where we're going to be taking some time to look at the wider world. We're going to leave Europe for a while because we've been talking about them a lot so far. And if you've listened to the last podcast, you kind of have some background information about my feelings about starting there. But it's you got to start somewhere in history. So we usually start in Europe. But what we're going to be getting to this next unit and on is is the wider world and so just like two weeks ago where we talked about the incan empire and how they were growing to be one of the most massive empires in the world we're going to take some time today to look at another empire that's going to have some effects on stuff that's upcoming in this class as well we're going to take some time to talk about the muslim empires that are going to be growing in the middle east so during this time, while European societies, uh, the Catholic Church is taking over and is becoming one of the most powerful organizations in history and is doing all these things like uh, condemning Galileo for his beliefs and the Protestant Reformation is going on, while all that stuff's happening, in the meantime, you have a Muslim empire, an Islamic empire in places like modern-day Iraq and modern-day Syria, who grow to extreme power and provide a lot of major benefits to the world, but unfortunately tend to be forgotten. But they're not going to be forgotten for long. We're going to be talking about them uh, very soon in this class. And so we're going to be taking a step back a little bit this year, or this podcast, to the year um, about the 600s, the 700s, somewhere in there, kind of during the Dark Ages, to kind of set this stage up. And just like we always do when it comes to having a historical question, or a historical topic, we're going to have a historical question that goes along with this. And our historical question we're going to be focusing on um, during this little section of the podcast is how did this early Islamic empire expand so rapidly? Because by the time they're at their height, they're bigger than the Roman Empire. 
almost as big as the Incan Empire, if not a little bit bigger. But the difference is they're able to do it extremely fast. Very similar to the Incans, if you remember two weeks back. They also do this extremely fast, much faster than the Romans were able to do it. The Romans took hundreds of years to get to the size that they get to. But the Muslim and the Islamic Empire expands extremely rapidly. So we're going to be focusing today on how that happens. But before we do that, I want to get into some background. First thing is this, and I'm sure I'm going to get some things not perfect. So forgive me for my namings that are incorrect and things. But the religion of Islam is essentially born around the year 570. About the time, about 100 years after the Roman Empire falls, uh, Europe had entered the Dark Ages, and Islam kind of springs onto the world. And it comes from a, a prophet slash leader um, slash holy symbol in a man named Muhammad. And Muhammad is very much the Jesus of, of Islam. And again, I'm sure my, my understandings aren't perfect, so please correct me if I'm getting things wrong. But Muhammad is kind of the Jesus of Islam. He's, he's the updated uh, prophet uh, god symbol. And so the Islamic faith follows the teachings of Muhammad over the teachings of Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They say there was a Jesus. But they say that Muhammad was the more recent version. And so Muhammad has the most updated information. The way I've always heard it described is Muhammad is the newest iPhone. Jesus was the iPhone before. And so Christians say Muhammad, you know, he didn't have anything. He was nobody. But Muslims say, nope, Muhammad was the next prophet. He was the upgraded, the next Jesus. And so when this all starts, Islam... It's about the year 570, and specifically a town called Mecca, which is in present-day Saudi Arabia. And the prophet Muhammad was a person, he was a man, and he reports during his life that he's giving, getting revelations excuse me, from God, and he's preaching about them. And his revelations that he's getting, he writes down in the, the Muslim holy book, the Quran, spelled Q-U-R-A-N, or also K-O-R-A-N, depending on who's, who's talking about it. But it's the Quran, just like Christianity has the Bible and Jesus. Islam has Muhammad and the Quran. Now, to start talking about the empire, we got to talk a little bit about what was happening in the Middle East during this time. And at the time of Muhammad's birth, the area he's going to start to turn into an empire, the Islamic empire, is called the Arabian Peninsula. Um, present-day Saudi Arabia, you can find it on a map, kind of, it's to the east of Egypt, to the west of India, kind of in a little area that, that kind of hangs off into the ocean. It's the Arabian Peninsula. And during Muhammad's time, there really wasn't anybody in charge of it. There was a ton of different little competing tribes, and they have names like the Mara, the, the Banu Kilab. The, the Banu Tamim. There's all these different tribes that make this, this area up, and none of them are really connected. But by the end of his life, by the end of Muhammad's life, when he was ascended into heaven, according to Muslim tradition, he was ascended into heaven, um, meaning he didn't really die, they believe. They believe he was just taken straight from, straight from earth to heaven. 
Um, he dies in 632. So he's, you could do the math, 50, 60 years old at that point. But by the time he dies, he had almost converted the entire Arabian Peninsula to Islam. This area of divided tribes who were friends with some and, and enemies with others and were, you know, not getting along all the time. He unites them all in, in just his lifetime under this brand new religion, Islam. And after he dies, he is regarded as the very first, and this is going to be an important word for even today in modern day Islam, he's going to become the very first caliphate. And in Islam, the caliphate was kind of the religious and political state of Muslims and the lands in their possession. In other words, the caliphate is like a religious empire, right? This is the land controlled by the Muslims. This is our caliphate. This is our empire. Very similar to how the Romans had an empire, but in the Roman empire, there's a lot of different competing religions. You have Egyptian religions fighting with Roman, fighting with Christianity, fighting with Judaism, right? But in the Muslim tradition, the caliphate is this is the Muslim territory and this is our empire under our religion. And the leader of a caliphate is called the caliph, the person in charge, right? The, 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 the divine leader. Think of him like the pope is to the Catholic faith, the caliph. And these people are going to be the successors to Muhammad. They have a, a linear progression down and down and down and down from Muhammad. Muhammad was the first, and there's the second, third, up till modern times, right? And so that's where it starts. But a little more than 100 years later, the Umayyad Caliphate, which is under this guy named Umayyad, stretches across the Middle East, North Africa, and also into Spain. It starts encroaching even on Christian lands, especially Spain. Spain is extremely Catholic, and the Muslim world, the caliphate of the Muslim world, spreads all the way up into there. At its height, here's some specifics for you, it covered 5.8 million square miles, and it was more than twice as large as the Roman Empire. At that point, it was the largest empire ever. And so what we're going to be looking at and just talking about today is how did it expand so rapidly? And in particular, what strategies did the Muslim world use to expand that quickly? Because to grow that large in such a short amount of time it is frankly uh, shocking compared to how long it took the Roman world to grow like that. And so what we have as historians when it comes to this, is we have a couple of different documents, just like we do in class. We're going to be basing this off documents. We have a couple of different documents that we use to look at how did the caliphate behave? What sorts of things did they do that allowed them to expand so rapidly? And there's a bunch of different ways that this question can be answered. And we're going to look at it from a couple of different lenses to hopefully come up with our own somewhat answer. And so the first document I want to go through here, the first 
event that I want to talk to you about is some of the some of the battles that the Muslim forces engaged in this Islamic caliphate because in order to make an empire you don't just have to be nice you also have to fight people right we talked about the Incans and they were very skilled at warfare the Romans were extremely skilled at warfare even if you go far enough back the ancient Egyptians in the year 8000 and 6000 were extremely skilled in warfare and so the Islamic Caliphate is going to be extremely skilled in warfare. And so we have an account um, written by a Muslim historian. His name is Ahmad al-Biladuri. I'm sure I said that wrong. And about the year 800. So he's writing about 100 years, 150 years after this battle. But the battle that we're gonna, we have from this Ahmad al-Biladuri is called the Battle of the Yarmuk, in which... The Muslim forces, the Islamic Caliphate, matched up with the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, specifically parts of Greece. And some things to keep in mind. First is this. By this point, by the year 636, when this battle happened, the big, major, strong Roman Empire of Cleopatra and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar had disintegrated. Rome was now a much weaker force. They had even moved their capital to a different city, Istanbul. And so we have this clash of empires, one that's slowly disintegrating and one that's rising. And this is what, translated obviously into English, um, Al-Biladuri says. He says, the, Mus the Muslims gathered and the Greek army marched against them. The Greeks and their followers in this battle tied themselves to each other by chains so that none of them would run away. The battle they fought at, Al-Yarmuk, which is the place that they fought, was one of the fiercest and bloodiest kind. In this battle, 24,000 Muslims took part. By Allah's help, Allah being their name for God, some 70,000 of them, the Greeks that is, the, the, the enemies of the Islamic Caliphate, were put to death and their remnants took flight, reaching as far as Palestine, Antioch, Aleppo, Mesopotamia, and Armenia, meaning they ran. In the Battle of Al-Yarmuk, certain Muslim women took part and fought violently. Among them was Hind, daughter of Utba and mother of, I'm going to mess this name up, Muawiva ibn Abi Sufyan, who repeatedly exclaimed, cut the arms of these non-Muslims with your swords. So it gives you a rough historical account of this battle. And it doesn't give you all the details like this general took his troops around and he crushed them from the West. It doesn't get into all that. But it gives you some really interesting perspectives. One of the big interesting perspectives to me was that first, a force of only 24,000 Muslims, a smaller force by about one-third smaller, was able to defeat a much larger force in the number of 70,000 Greeks, maybe more. So that's the first thing to me that says, wow, something's really special about this Islamic Caliphate. They're able to destroy a force much stronger than them. Another thing that jumps out to me is that they talk about Muslim women fighting with them. You don't hear that very much in many cultures. You didn't hear about that much in the Incan society, in the Incan Empire. You didn't hear about that very much in the Roman Empire. But at least in this battle, 
We don't know of others. We know that Muslim women were also fighting in the battle. And finally, you end with this quote from this, this, this woman, Muawiva, who speaks with a type of religious fervor. Cut the arms of these non-Muslims with your swords, these non-believers. So one of the ways we can think about what made this, this caliphate, this new empire, this young upstart empire so powerful is that, yes, they were good soldiers. Yes, they were good at battles. But there's a religiosity to them. There's a holy war aspect to the things that they're doing. And a lot of times what you see in battles like this or in empires like this as they grow is if you can get your soldiers to believe not just that they're fighting to protect their, 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 their friends back home or not just that they're fighting to, to protect themselves, but they're fighting for a religious reason, right? They even mention in the reading, Allah's help, by Allah's help. If they're fighting for a religious reason, a lot of times soldiers will fight 10 times as hard as an everyday soldier if they believe their, their, their battle is holy and just and, and there's a religious aspect to it. So one of the perspectives we have is that they were so good because they were so religious. Their belief, their conviction and their beliefs was so strong compared to the Roman Empire, who by this point was just a crumbling empire. Now, that's not the only source we have from the time, though. We also have some other conflicting sources that show the Islamic Caliphate as something a little different, not a religious holy war empire, but something a little different. And so this source um, is a treaty. It's, it's an official document that was signed about the same time as this battle, about 50 years or so, 60 years after this battle was fought, the Battle of the Yarmouk. This is signed, this is a treaty, created and signed about the year 1713. And it was signed between two countries. The first, obviously being the caliphate or the empire of, of the caliphate, the Islamic forces, and the kingdom of Spain, a Christian kingdom, an extremely Catholic kingdom, who's going to be really important to the next unit we get to, the global global age of exploration, Spain has a lot to do with things. So we have a really interesting meeting of the minds here where we have an Islamic society meeting up with a Christian society. And this treaty is called the Treaty of Tudmir, Tudmir, and it's signed between the two people. The Islamic commander of the Muslim forces was Abed al-Aziz, and the king of Spain... His name was Theodomir, or Theodomir, depending on how you say it. And in this treaty, the Christian king of Spain, being controlled by the Pope, obviously, because at this time, if you were Christian, you were also Catholic, signs a treaty giving his land up to the Islamic forces. And put that in perspective. The Catholic Church has most of the power in Europe at this time, 1700s rather. And the Christian king of Spain is giving up his territory to a Muslim caliphate. But let's look at why. Because according to the first source, it would sound like almost this Abed al-Aziz was just a super powerful war leader. 
But what we're going to see in this source is that's not really the case. This Treaty of Tudmir, that's not really the case. And this is how it reads. It says, in the name of God, the merciful and compassionate. Remember, this is a, an official treaty document. We, and this is we being Abed al-Aziz's forces, will not harass him, Theodomers. We, the, Islam, the Islamic Caliphate, will not harass the Christian forces nor will we remove him from power, nor will we remove Theodomir from power. His forces will not be killed or taken prisoner, nor will they be separated from their women and children. They will not be coerced in matters of religion. Their churches will not be burned, nor will sacred objects be taken from the realm, as long as he, the king of Spain, Theodomir, remains sincere and fulfills these conditions that we have set for him. He will not give shelter to fugitives, nor to our enemies, nor encourage any protected person to fear us, nor conceal news of our enemies. He and each of his men shall also pay one dinar every year together with four measures of wheat, four measures of barley, four liquid measures of concentrated fruit juice, four liquid measures of vinegar, four of honey, and four of olive oil. Slaves must each pay half of this amount. Oh, so it gets interesting here. You start to see that the Islamic Caliphate and the Muslim forces are politicians first. Not just, like the first account shows, invading forces. Not just soldiers with religious ideals. They're politicians Essentially, in this document, what we see is the Islamic forces are taking control of Spain, but they're not going to change anything. Y'all can still be Christian in Spain. Your king can still stay in power. Your kids are going to get to stay where they stay, that, that the men are going to still get to work where they work. No one's going to be killed. No one's going to be taken prisoner. No one's going to have to become Muslim. We're not going to touch any of your churches. As long as you, one, help us out. Don't go behind our back and trick us to our enemies. And two, you pay a little bit of taxes every year. They ask for that one dinar every year with four measures of wheat, the barley, and all that. Um, a dinar was a coin. So everybody's going to have to pay, uh, every person in the, in the Spanish territory is going to pay one of these coins, one of these Muslim coins, as well as some wheat, some barley, some liquid uh, juice, some vinegar, blah, blah, blah. And on the back side of this, the Muslim forces are going to protect you. This is a very common thing that a lot of strong empires do. You can only be an empire who kills their way to the top for so long before you have to learn to be a politician. You have to learn how to say, you guys can do your thing. We're going to be in charge, more or less, but you do your thing, and we'll leave you alone. And we'll just kind of protect you if, if someone tries to mess with you. You see the Romans do this in various instances, especially in places like Egypt. You see the Incans from two weeks ago, a podcast, do this in various other tribes. Instead of killing all the tribes, they assimilate them. They bring them into their culture. And this is what the Muslim Caliphate is doing here as well. They're bringing in the Spanish culture into the Muslim territory saying, do your thing. 
pay your taxes. Don't, don't, don't go behind our backs and we'll kind of take care of you. And it starts to change the story a little bit, right? It starts to make us view this caliphate as, well, they were pretty smart, weren't they? They weren't just really good soldiers. They were also really good at politics. And so we have one more source we're going to look at here to kind of complete the picture of this Islamic caliphate. And then we'll try to focus on maybe that question of how did this empire spread so fast? And so this source actually comes from a historian. Um, and it comes from a book by a historian at the University of Chicago named Fred Donner. It's a slightly older book. This book was published in 1981. But in his book, he kind of starts to express some of the, the, the differing beliefs about the Islamic conquests and the caliphate, kind of like what the other sources have been showing us. And this is what Donner has to say in his book about this, this caliphate. It says, during the conquest period, the granting of gifts, which had been practiced by Muhammad, remember, if you don't know, Muhammad was the, the Islamic Jesus, right? He's their, their, their holy figure says the granting of gifts became more regularized and eventually institutionalized. In the first place, there was established a system of stipends or direct salary payments to warriors serving in the Islamic armies. Tribesmen in the Islamic armies who rebelled against the regime now did so at the cost of losing the stipends that the regime provided. Similarly, stipends were granted to some Persian or Armenian nobles who cooperated with the Muslims in Iraq. In most cases, it appears that these individuals were required to embrace Islam in order to receive their stipend. Mm. So this guy adds a third twist to the story. He says that not only did the Islamic Caliphate, not only were they good soldiers and they were able to conquer territories through force, not only were they really good at politics and diplomacy and the things that make people follow their leaders, they also had a system where they would pay their people in order to stay loyal. They call that a stipend. And a stipend, if you need to know, it translates directly to payment. A stipend is a payment. And so if you became a soldier for the Islamic Caliphate, you would get paid for that job, for that work. And then you could send that work back home and feed your family, similar to what we do today in modern day society, right? If you're a soldier for the American army or for the British army or for uh, the Chinese army, doesn't matter, you're gonna get paid for your service. And he says, Fred Donner says, that the Islamic Caliphate was doing that to their soldiers. And one, this made it so that those tribes that were originally kind of bickering, kind of arguing, it made them all join together. Because now to argue against the Islamic Caliphate would be to give up your payments. And very few people are going to bite the hand that feeds them when it comes to their payments. Right? If you're going to pay me to do this, yeah, I'll stay pretty loyal to you because I can feed my family with this. In fact, I'm going to start requiring this money to survive. So I'm going to do what you say, and I'm going to listen, even if I don't like it very much. So one, boom, 
that stops the fighting in the caliphate. They all unite under one because of these stipends. And two, he also talks about how he, the Islamic caliphate would do this to the rich and powerful people, the nobles in Persia and the Arameans. It pays the powerful people to stay loyal. Here's some money. You, you are the rich and powerful of this, this area we just conquered. Here's some money as long as you stay faithful to us. And it says, in some cases, uh, they were required to become Islamic. In some cases, the rich and powerful would have been forced to, to, to convert to Islam. But not in all. And if you think about it, this makes some sense. The rich and powerful are the people who controlled the government. The rich and powerful were the people who controlled the armies. If you get them on your side through payments or whatever else you have to do, but according to this guy, payments through these stipends, then you can get everybody else to join as well. And so we end up with this, this image of this, this empire that's going to challenge the Catholic Church. It's going to challenge the Christian world. It's going to challenge much of the changes during the Renaissance, especially as we get closer and closer to the 1500s. But we see that they are multifaceted. Yes, they are great warriors, but they're also great diplomats and great at bureaucracy and great at government. And they also have some understanding of the way the world works economically. They're very rich. They have money. And they're going to get people to swing to their side simply because those people can get paid. And so to the final question or to the key question, I don't know that I have a total answer for you. And this is one that people would have to make themselves. But how did the early Islamic empire expand? I would argue the early Islamic empire expanded and became this major empire that's going to challenge the Christian and the Catholic world um, through being flexible through being able to fight, but also being able to speak and discuss, and also having money to back up their ideas. Now, the Islamic Empire, we're going to start seeing more of them as we get closer and closer to units upcoming. We're going to start getting into the global age of exploration, talk about when the world starts to expand and starts to connect itself a little bit more, and then we're going to go into the Enlightenment and things down the road. And the Islamic world is going to exist in all those, those events. So with that said, we'll wrap this section up. A slightly longer history section because our first section was a little bit shorter, test week. Um, in class, we'll get those tests done. And we'll be moving on to the age of exploration. Starting to keep in mind that the empires of the world are now going to start kind of clashing against each other. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. I'll see you all in class.